Hi, I'm Lauren Gilger, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning. It's the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, KJZZ's reporting has sparked a bill in the state legislature to address when special education students graduate. And what the first stages of study of the return sample from the OSIRIS-REx mission are revealing. But first, there is a big problem in the calendar leading up to the 2024 election in Arizona. The issue was caused by a new law passed by Republican legislators in 2022 to widen the margin of victory that would trigger a recount after an election. But now a recount in Arizona could drag on past the deadline to send results to Congress. If there's a recount following the primary election, election officials might not be able to mail ballots to military voters overseas in time to vote in the general election. Election officials across the state have been sounding the alarm for months to change this, and now it looks like lawmakers are making progress toward a solution. Jeremy Duda with Axios Phoenix has been covering the story and joins us now with more. Good morning, Jeremy. Good morning. All right. So start with the law that kind of created this situation we find ourselves in now. This was in response to the 2020 election and Donald Trump's very narrow loss to Joe Biden in Arizona that year, right? That is correct. Um, uh, Joe Biden uh, defeated Donald Trump by about 10,500 votes in 2020, and uh, which was a very pretty narrow margin, certainly narrower than we've seen in a presidential race in the state in a long time, but not narrow enough for an automatic recount, which was an extremely uh, uh, very small margin, very narrow circumstances that could trigger that. It was uh, about a point one person. The difference between the uh, winner and the loser. And the, the, the margin of victory had to be within 0.1% of the mm. total votes cast, which is very narrow, and we very rarely saw these. So, that, so the legislation was passed in 2022, expanded that to 0.5% of the total votes cast, which potentially could dramatically increase the uh, number of recounts we actually see. Right, right. Okay, so that that 10,000-plus vote win uh, from Joe Biden in 2020 didn't trigger a recount then, but it, it would now under this new law. That it would, yes. Okay. So now we have this time crunch, essentially, in the election calendar. How big of a deal could this be, first of all, Jeremy, if it's not addressed? Uh, potentially a uh, potentially big deal for a couple of reasons. Um, I think probably the most noteworthy that uh, hadn't been anti- couldn't have been anticipated at the time this law was passed was that uh, last year, uh, Congress, pa- I believe, Congress passed the Electoral Count Reform Act, which was meant to kind of uh, prevent some of the uh, shenanigans we saw with the attempt to overturn the election in 2020. But this sets some uh, pretty hard and fast deadlines for when states have to to certify uh, electoral college votes, uh, electors, and uh, transmit that information to Congress. And so for, so the initial deadline, I believe, is December 11th for mm-hmm. the state executive to do some certifications. And that and Arizona is at risk of missing that. We, of course, take uh, kind of a long time compared to most states to count all of our ballots. Think if there's a, you know, if there are automatic recounts, that can't be done until you know the ballots, of course, are are completed until there's a statewide canvas of the other results, and that puts us at risk of dragging on past that deadline, which theoretically, at least, would put us at risk of not having our uh, electoral votes counted. And then, of course, in the primary election, 
uh, depending if there are recounts and dragons that we could miss the uh, statutory deadline for mailing out uh, over to uh, ballots to military and other overseas uh, voters. Right. If you're still recounting, you can't send out the general election ballots because you don't know who's on them yet. OK, sure. So lawmakers, it sounds like, are working on a deal with the governor's office in ways. Where do negotiations stand right now? Um, it's hard to say. Things are kind of in a holding pattern, and we have uh, we are coming up close to the deadline for when election officials in the counties say this has to be passed, which is early February. We don't have kind of an exact uh, you know drop dead uh, deadline, but um, so you have lawmakers, the governor's office, and county election officials all negotiating here, and there are some things that are fairly non controversial that would go in here, such as you know you know. Moving up deadlines for you know proofreading ballots, uh, potentially some stuff on uh, when uh, the uh, recounts having recounts begin after counties uh, canvass their elections, as opposed to when the state uh, completes that. But there are some other issues, a handful of other issues that are really holding things up. And so far, I'm not seeing a lot of agreement between uh, between the three sides. And they're going to have to agree because this is something that would have to go through a special session, right? Yeah, they'll have to pass this. Uh, I the election official believe this needs to be passed uh, pretty much immediately. So if that would probably have to be passed in a special session. It would have to be passed with a supermajority of votes in each chamber that would allow it to go into effect uh, immediately because they election officials have to start making these plans, you know, very quickly and planning around, you know, know, different circumstances. This could potentially move up the primary date, which would cause a lot of uh, things to kind of shift around. Yeah, yeah. Okay. so where are the sticking points you mentioned? Republicans are against the idea of moving up the primary, it sounds like. Um, they had been, and we are seeing kind of more movement on that now. I know back in September, back in December, I asked uh, Senator Wendy Rogers, who uh, chairs the Senate Elections Committee, she was not open to doing that. More recently, uh, Senate President Warren Peterson says he is willing to do that. Mm-hmm. So we've seen some movement on that. Governor Hobbs uh, told me yesterday that she does not want to do that. She thinks it's too late to move the primary and it cause a lot of other problems. Um, the other potential uh, sticking point is there's a, for what's known as the curing period for early ballots, when you drop off an early ballot or a early ballot comes in kind of late, uh, close to the election, you know, election officials use your signature on the envelope to verify your identity. And if they don't match, then the election officials have five business days after the election to contact voters, reach out to them, confirm mm-hmm. that that is, in fact, their signature so their vote can be counted. Uh, there's talk of kind of bump of shortening that period, uh, maybe reducing some days or making it five calendar days instead of five business days. And Governor Hobbs has told me as well that she's also opposed to that and feels like we kind of reduce access to the ballot, make it harder for people to vote. Yeah. So we're going to have to see you know, what they decide. We've really only got, uh, you know, a week and a half, maybe. It's hard It's hard to say the exact deadline, but a week, week and a half seems like when they'd have to get this done. It's a tight timeline to fix a tight timeline. Um, tell us, I mean, we're looking at a special session. They would need a supermajority to pass this. Is it going to be hard to come by that kind of agreement in this chamber that's so divided? I mean, it, it could be, but this is something that kind of has to get done. I feel yeah. like, especially the military voters issues, nobody wants to disenfranchise military voters. That's of all, of all the voters you could disenf- potentially disenfranchise. That's probably the, uh, <laughs> the one that would be, have the most political blowback and would probably bother the most people. So this is something just that needs to get done. Election officials are pretty much unified in their uh, insistence this needs to be done. And, uh, you know, that it, you know, just like a budget negotiation or any other big negotiation, it seems intractable, intractable on both sides until one day they all of a sudden have an agreement <laughs> and then we start moving forward. And uh, someone's going to have to blink here, the governor, the legislature, probably both. All right. We'll see what happens. Jeremy Duda with Axios Phoenix joining us with the latest on this story. Jeremy, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. 
Affordable housing, or the lack of it, continues to be a major concern across the valley. Last month on the show, we talked about why it can be so difficult to build new affordable units in the state. But today, we'll hear from someone working to get more attainable homes built. Jacqueline Edwards is the director of Maricopa County's Human Services Department. She says increasing the number of affordable homes has been a priority for the Board of Supervisors, especially since the beginning of the pandemic. She says the board has allocated around $130 million from the American Rescue Plan Act to build more affordable housing, partnering with cities, towns, nonprofits, and developers across the county to do it. Edwards joins me to talk more about this. And Jacqueline, is it fair to say there are challenges and opportunities in a position like yours where you're working with a variety of cities with a variety of needs and wants as opposed to maybe doing the work yourself like a city might do? I think what makes us successful in this realm is because of our partnerships with local jurisdictions, with nonprofits, with developers, because we've partnered with local municipalities to support the housing needs of their community. And what's right for one community may not be the best solution for another. Does it make it a little more difficult, though, I wonder, like, if you were just working for a city, name any city across the valley, like, you sort of have your plans for what land you have available, what the market's like, what the needs are. But in your role, you're sort of dealing with a lot of, it seems just like a lot of moving parts all at once. And, you know, as you say, what works great in Phoenix might not work so well in Peoria. So it just seems like there's a sort of a lot of maybe different things you have to come up with all at once. So I think that's where we um, are able to be very intentional and tailor our solutions to meet the needs of those communities. And it's actually very exciting to to work for the county and to be in this role because we are able to have so many different solutions um, on the table and be able to adjust accordingly based on the needs of those uh, communities and what those local jurisdictions uh, may want to pursue. What are some of the the solutions, what are some of the options that seem to have more broad support across the valley, uh, you know, maybe regardless of what city they're in, things that you've been able to to try to work on in in multiple cities? Well, rehab of uh, current properties is a big part of our portfolio of four um, uh, sustaining um, affordable housing in the community. And that really makes a difference no matter where you live um, in Maricopa County, because the housing stock we have um, is aging. When you talk about things that maybe work in some places that don't work in others, are you mostly talking about things like density and high rises and like apartment complexes versus buildings or duplexes or quadplexes, things like that? So um, when I take a look at what's going to be great for one community and may not be the best solution for others, um, really how we approach it is, you know, an example would be in Gila Bend. Um, We have uh, put money into that community for um, homes to be built. So community land trust is a really great solution there because it makes it affordable for people to be able to purchase the home. And at the same time, in a community land trust model, the uh, home will stay affordable in perpetuity. 
In other communities, you know, we've um, partnered with the city of Phoenix on a, a permanent supportive housing uh, complex. That's what's needed in that community uh, because of the populations that they're trying to focus on housing. Mm -hmm. So each community needs a little bit different. And it's not so much um, that something wouldn't work somewhere else. It's really about the intentionality and, and focusing the solutions on that city or town's needs. Sure. So there's obviously been so much discussion and attention on the need for more affordable housing, workforce housing, attainable housing. And, you know, over the last several months, there's been a lot of discussion about the role of cities in that in terms of zoning regulations or, you know, allowing casitas, things like that. I'm curious from your perspective, like, do you run into issues where you know, something might work for a city and maybe even the city thinks it's a good idea, but the rules and regulations in that particular community just don't allow for it. So the projects that we've invested in, um, typically we are coming in when the zoning is already in place, when the plans are already moving forward, and often are the entity that really provides the gap funding or that last dollar to make the project come to fruition. What do you think it's going to take for this region to really have the amount of housing and the amount of affordable housing that it needs? I mean, we keep seeing the number of units short we are and the number of affordable units short we are. Like, What's it going to take to get us where we need to be? Um, it will take partnerships, partnerships across all levels of government. So from the federal government to the state, to county, to local uh, partnerships with nonprofits and partnership with developers. And we can't forget in all of these partnerships, partnership with our community members so that they understand um, what units are needed in our community and who that really applies to. Well, and it seems to me you have kind of a unique perspective working for the county that, as we've discussed, you work with a lot of different cities across the region as opposed to just sort of working in one of them. I wonder, you know, as you are able to maybe take a, a slightly broader view of, of this county, of this region, are there particular areas that maybe seem primed to be doing better than others or where it's more likely that they will have the amount of affordable, attainable workforce housing that they need, perhaps relative to other parts of the of the valley? Actually, what we've seen um, with our investments um, of the American Rescue Plan Act funds is this expansion of affordable and workforce housing across Maricopa County. So each area, whether we're talking about urban, suburban, or rural has made significant strides in expanding uh, those opportunities for community members. Again, it, it's partnerships at every level that has really made Maricopa County uh, a prime area for this expansion of housing that's really needed at all income levels um, in our community. Is that trajectory, do you think, sustainable, especially given that, you know, the federal money is a one-time thing? It's it's not – once it's gone, it's not coming back. Uh, so the, the escalation um, of investments in this brief um, last few years 
really is a once in a lifetime opportunity. And the Board of Supervisors in Maricopa County um, decided to invest that to expand affordable housing. And like I said, it's a it's a once in a lifetime investment. But what we're doing here in uh, Maricopa County is to ensure that although uh, smaller in nature, that the funding that we do receive, especially from the, the federal government for affordable housing, will be able to be invested very intentionally as we move forward. Sure. All right. That is Jacqueline Edwards, director of Maricopa County's Human Services Department. Jacqueline, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Mark. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, last year, OSIRIS-REx returned to Earth with material from an asteroid. We'll hear what these measurements can tell us about life on Earth and beyond. But first, most of the world has moved on from the COVID-19 pandemic. With vaccines and treatment widespread, most of us aren't wearing masks anymore. Most of us aren't social distancing or quarantining or doing all of the things that were such hallmarks of life with COVID-19. But there is a big group of people for whom the coronavirus is anything but behind them. People suffering from long COVID. For them, life hasn't been the same since they contracted COVID-19. And our next guest reports they are disproportionately Latino. Lisa Navarro is an independent journalist and contributor for Palabra, the nonprofit news outlet for the National Association of Hispanic Journalists. I spoke with her more about her reporting and the people she profiled in the rural farming community of Yakima Valley in Washington state. So one of the long haulers who we spoke with was she wanted to use the name Maria, which is not her real first name, because a lot of people feel very nervous about being public, about being a long hauler. Mm -hmm. So she was infected with COVID and then she never recovered. Um, so she, you know, started to develop really intense full body pain, extreme exhaustion, discoloration of her hands. Uh, they turned purple. This is common with other long collars. It happens to their hands and their feet. And so, you know, it, this is not just a small health, a nuisance. It's really an all encompassing life altering event, which also impacts her life in the sense that what she can do every day. So you know, her kids had to adapt to her not being able to do everything for them that she used to do. She struggles with work some. And her family also early on really doubted what was going on with her. They thought that it was psychological. That it was all in her head. And this is a common thing that we heard from other Latino long haulers is that um, their communities often don't understand that it's a physical illness. Mm. I want to ask you very straightforwardly, like to give us a definition of long COVID, because you've done a lot of reporting on it for this story. And I think a lot of people still see it as like this mysterious thing. But there is a real definition, right? There is. And I think it's really important to talk about that because people don't know enough about long COVID, including what it is. So I think a lot of people have it and don't realize that. So the World Health Organization's definition of long COVID is new or worsening health issues that last at least three months after a COVID infection. Mm -hmm. So that can be, it can be completely new symptoms. So it can be that you develop migraines and you'd never had them before after having had COVID. It can be that you already had diabetes, but that your diabetes dramatically worsened. So those are a couple of examples, but there are over 200 symptoms that long haulers have reported wow. having with long COVID. 
So a, a wide variety of symptoms. So let's talk a little bit about the challenges in that for the people that you profiled in particular. There's a real challenge, it seems like, in, in just even getting a diagnosis for folks, right? Huge challenge, huge challenge. This is something that's common among long haulers en masse. They have to, you know, suffer, go through a lot of testing that is all negative, And then often they figure it out themselves. Mm. Uh, and so this is what happened with both of the long haulers who I profiled or who I followed in the story. Um, both of them understood that what was going on in their bodies had happened after having had COVID. So both of them had to essentially propose the diagnosis to their own doctors or insist over and over and over again that the health issues that they were dealing with, which they'd never had before COVID, were because of COVID. Mm -hmm. And for Maria, the woman who I just spoke about a minute ago, you know, it was really detrimental that her doctors were not listening to her. Her family doctor, you know, her regular practitioner, tried to diagnose her with multiple sclerosis, which mm. she doesn't have. Uh, another specialist told her that if she didn't get better within a month, that they were going to operate on her hip. She has never had hip problems. So, you know, it goes from the range of doctors being uneducated, which is kind of the best case scenario, to misdiagnosing and doing actual harm to people. You know, something that we hear a lot about in long COVID is people who are told, oh, you're you're dealing with fatigue, you need to get more exercise. Just you're you're just de deconditioned. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, you're out of breath. You have anxiety. And so people are told then to do exercise, mm -hmm. to push themselves physically. But that can actually make long haulers sicker. Not just that it can, but it does. So you're reporting something here as well that is sort of as of yet unreported and important, which is that long COVID is having a disproportionate impact on the Latino community in, in particular. Tell us a little bit about that and the, and the numbers that you uncovered yeah. So let me first say that the numbers are, they're hard to depend on. The numbers are hard to trust. They're hard to use as a real guide for what's happening with long COVID among Latinos, mm -hmm. because all of the statistics that exist thus far are not accurate. The federal data that's available is using a small sliver of the population. It's, a, it's an online survey that's done semi-monthly. And so the data that we get from that is that, yes, Latinos are reporting having long COVID at a higher rate. 36% of Latinos have had or do have long COVID. But part of that is that a lot of people do not realize that they have long COVID. Yeah. So when you're talking about Latinos in particular, one of the other people who I spoke with for the story, um, who wanted to use the name Victoria, she figured out herself that she had long COVID, but she's never been able to get a doctor to diagnose it. Mm. But in addition to that, she sees so many people in her community having long COVID. So first you have lack of diagnosis, right? Especially among Latinos, because there is either, you know, a limited amount of time that doctors have with their patients. You know, we talk about like the average 15 minute visit and doctors are rushed and they don't, may not know their patients well. Doctors don't have education to know what long COVID looks like. And then sometimes what happens is stereotyping. So racism in medicine, you know, with doctors assuming, okay, here is a diabetic patient whose diabetes has really worsened. That's just because she's Latina. Or here is another Latino patient who has developed high blood pressure. Well, that's just because cardiovascular disease is 
is high among Latinos. When I first started to report this story, some researchers and clinicians were kind of wondering aloud, well, what's the what's the reason for this? You know, nobody thought that there was a genetic or, you know, a genetic ethnic reason. But what became clear really pretty early on in the reporting was that this has a lot to do with who was protecting the country early in the pandemic. And that was people of color. Let me ask you, lastly, I know you are experiencing long COVID yourself. How has your own experience of this kind of played into your reporting on it? Well, in the first part, I think that it's motivated me to report on long COVID. Yeah. You know, I still see that there is not enough reporting on long COVID period. And it ties in with the drive to move back to normal, you know, to let's leave the pandemic behind us. And so if you don't report, you know, if you don't see media reporting on long COVID, you might think that it doesn't exist. So that's the first part of it, you know, is that I have experienced for three years, this really um, catastrophic (laughs) event in my health and in my life. Mm. And, And I wanted to tell other people's stories about that, especially these stories of, uh, you know, people who were already, you know, underserved and marginalized, who are really fighting to have to get help with it. All right. We'll leave it there for now. Ligia Navarro, independent journalist and contributor and editor at Palabra, joining us to talk more about this story. Ligia, thank you so much for coming on and telling us about your reporting and your own experience here. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for getting the word out. High school graduation is an exciting time, but for special education students and their families, it can be complicated. Some Valley families and advocates say schools are pushing students out before they're ready. Now, in response to KJZZ's reporting, a bill to address that has been introduced in the Arizona legislature. The show's Amy Silverman reports. Do you like going to school, Piper? Yes. Yes, and she really loves to tell jokes. Will you tell me a joke? That's funny. (laughs) That's funny. Piper Palmer is a senior at Chaparral High School in Scottsdale, but she won't be graduating this year. Palmer, who is 20 and has cerebral palsy, can walk with assistance and make a joke with her communication device. If handed a spoon, she can scoop yogurt from a cup into her mouth. She is just now learning to engage with peers, to play a simple game, or ask to hold someone's hand. As a special education student, by law, she can remain in school until her 22nd birthday. And so her mother, Jennifer, was surprised when school personnel informed the family last year that Piper had enough credits to graduate. Suddenly, Piper had gone from taking functional math to Algebra 2. Last year, right before I found out that she was going to move on to to graduate, I started getting, oh, she's solving long long division problems and she's solving two digit by two digit multiplication. And I'm questioning them going, how is that possible when she still can't even count with me? She still doesn't have one-to-one correspondence. Turns out if you earn enough credits anytime before your 22nd birthday, the school can graduate you. It also turns out that Arizona offers an incentive for schools that graduate special education students in four years. Disability rights advocates call it forced graduation. And it's not just happening in the Scottsdale Unified School District. In schools across the valley, families are reportedly caught off guard each spring, told their students are about to graduate. KJZZ interviewed a second family at Chaparral High 
as well as several families in the Tempe Unified High School District. Last June, KJZZ first reported that a North High student with Down syndrome would have been forced to graduate if a family friend with political connections hadn't intervened. At the time, a Phoenix Union High School District spokesman said his district does not force students out. George Diaz, a longtime player in Arizona politics, was happy to make things right for his friend. Now he and others want to fix the system for others in similar situations. This week, Republican Senator Ken Bennett introduced legislation at the behest of Carla Phillips Kravikas, the CEO and founder of Inclusive Strategies, a public affairs firm that advocates for students with disabilities. Phillips Kravikas has a daughter with Down syndrome who attends a public high school in Phoenix. But yeah, we call this bill the No Surprises Act because the consistent theme starting with your article, of course, was these parents are caught off guard. And for better or worse, these parents assume that their kids are going to stay till they're 21. So they're totally surprised. My my theory is that no parent should be surprised senior year to find out that their kid is or is not graduating. Phillips Kravikas was taken aback by how many students she found in this situation. I talked to one mom about this forced graduation issue. She's out in the West Valley. And I was terrified because as she was telling me her story, it was clear to me that this was like happening like in real time, like it's this year. The problem is so prevalent that the Arizona Center for Disability Law sent out a warning to families about forced graduation. Because school administrators won't admit it's happening, it's difficult to know exactly why students in special education are being pushed through the system. It could be because of staff shortages and funding shortfalls. Another reason? The state issues letter grades to public schools each year. One of the criteria is graduation rates. Schools receive credit for graduating students in four years. This includes special education students, even though those students are legally allowed to remain in school for years past that. Again, Carla Phillips Kravikas. Schools should not be penalized for designing programs for kids with disabilities who are allowed to stay longer. So um, we're hoping to address that this year for sure. School administrators acknowledge that budgets are tight, but one insists that no one is being caught off guard. Brooke Williams is the director of special education for the Scottsdale Unified School District. We don't shock them, right? Like the, the parents are part of that conversation every year. And we talk about what math skills are they working on? What math credits are they working on? What are the graduation requirements? What does that look like? So school teams have been talking about that. I can't imagine a scenario where a, a, a family would just be told, surprise, your students graduating. Liz Coker disagrees. Her son Zane is 17. He has Down syndrome and autism and attends Chaparral High like Piper Palmer. Coker says she was caught off guard when school officials suddenly announced Zane was ready to graduate. I said, so are you saying that he's going to graduate, that he's fulfilled his high school requirements because of time, the passage of time? I said, because he hasn't met the goals, he hasn't had the classes, and he doesn't have the credits. No, not even close. Families worry about what's next for their students when they graduate. The No Surprises Act also addresses issues around the transition from high school to the real world, requiring that planning begins early and lays out a foundation for the student's future. Scottsdale's Brooke Williams says her district has made great strides in providing better transition options, including a program at Scottsdale Community College. She acknowledges that none of this is easy. 
But I think that there's so many factors that play here. There are districts that are trying to do right by families and kids. There are families that are worried about their students and what next steps look like after high school. Um, I think there are community pieces at play. So what options do we have for our students after they leave the public education setting, whether it's in four years or five years or six years? Not nearly enough options, parents say. Jennifer Palmer, Piper's mom, has experience as a special education teacher and administrator. She successfully argued to extend Piper's time at Chaparral. But she's still worried about her daughter's future. Palmer has started trying to find an adult day program for Piper when she does eventually leave high school. There's not much out there, she says. You look at these places and I'm like, I, because those places, I'm so thankful that they have them, but people stay there until they die, which is wonderful for those families. (laughs) But there's hardly any openings. And if there is an opening, do I really want my 19-year-old with 55-year-old men in wheelchairs? No. So there's nothing in between. School, Jennifer Palmer says, is the only place Piper can be with her peers, keep learning, and continue to grow. For KJZZ's The Show, I'm Amy Silverman. You can hear this story and read past coverage on the topic of forced graduation on our website, theshow.kjzz.org. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. This is a time of year when we often talk about big events coming to the Phoenix area. Think the Super Bowl or the Phoenix Open. But lovers of gems, minerals, jewelry, space rocks, and all sorts of other items like that are flocking to Tucson now for a series of shows that culminates with the Tucson Gem and Mineral Show in about a week and a half. City officials expect tens of thousands of visitors over the course of the events. With me now to talk about all this is Jim Ninsel, a member of the Report for America Corps, serving as government and political impact reporter for the online Tucson Sentinel. He's also a gem of a human being himself. Hey there, Jim. Hey there, man. That that was a powerful story by Amy. It's it's not easy to to follow Amy Silverman on, on the show. <laughs> we but, try to do uh, it I'll every do day. Yeah, we yeah. Appre- we appreciate it. So, like for for folks who haven't been uh, to Tucson or in Tucson uh, during sort of this time of year when there's all sorts of different events, like w- what is it like for in in Tucson right now? Well, we we are getting our rocks on down here in Tucson. <laughs> you know, uh, it is it is the busiest tourist time of the year. You know, they they uh, the tourism folks estimate we've got sixty five thousand people uh, from around the world coming to town. And you know, I can't I can't say I've counted them all, but it seems <laughs> like a reasonable estimate. If you uh, go downtown, it's a lot trickier to get a, a table for dinner or. Uh, you know, uh, uh, it, it's just very busy downtown right now, uh, and it's it's building because this is this is really just the start of it. Uh, we have, I think, uh, more than three dozen shows. I mean, that, that's one of the popular misunderstandings. As right? You said, yeah. It's 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 not just one show. It's it's a, it's more than three dozen of them, and, and they uh, and they run for about three weeks. And there's an estimated four thousand dealers from around the nation and around the world who are uh, who will be here over that period. So yeah, you really can find you know dinosaur bones or meteorites or minerals or precious stones or you know magic rings that will turn you invisible. I mean, it's <laughs> it's really an astonishing astonishing time to uh, be in Tucson if this is your your jam. 
Well, so like, do do the shows each of the individual shows like do they tend to have a different focus or are they all kind of like just different versions of the same kind of thing? Well, you know, it's it's all kinds of because you know some people specialize in fossils, some specialize in the in the meteorites. Uh, you know, there's there's such a wide range of of interests in this kind of thing. You know, the if, some people are really jazzed by you know collecting a a geode of some kind you know mm-hmm. so lots of jewelry so people are interested in that lots of art from around the world uh that kind of falls within the kind of very wide rubric of of gem minerals and fossils so yeah i think it's it's uh there's there's something for any everyone if if this is your thing and I guess we, we probably also need to talk about sort of the granddaddy of them all, right? The Tucson Gem and Mineral Show, which, as you pointed out, is sort of what a lot of people, I think, mistakenly assume that this all is. That is that is a really huge thing at, downtown at the Tucson Convention Center. That's sort of the, the finale of, of the whole the whole exercise here. Pretty much, you know, uh, right now you're, you're seeing shows set up in hotels and in casinos and uh, giant tents around town. Uh, but what you'll you'll see happen, uh, the conclusion of it all is is February 8th through the 11th at the Tucson Convention Center. And the Gem and Mineral Show was uh, launched way back in, in 1955. So it's been mm. around for a really long time and it has grown, obviously, uh, uh, over the years. Um, but, uh, yeah, this little little group called the uh, Tucson Gem and Mineral Society came together right after World War Two. And uh, eventually, about 10 years later, said, hey, let's put on a show. And, and uh, now we have this massive uh, gathering in Tucson annually. So it's, it's really been a remarkable success story. And I think rock hounds from across the globe really say, hey, Tucson's the place to be this time of the year, as do many other people. Let's face it. Yeah, no, of course. I mean, so like, does it seem as though that the, the sort of the main show was that sort of the draw for some of the other ones that over time sort of spread it out over multiple weeks as opposed to just a few days yeah i, I think the whole gem and mineral business is is you know there's a lot of money to be made mm-hmm. in this biz and so as more and more people started coming to the the main show other people were like oh you know what i'll do my own little side show and and it just really snowballed from there to to the point where we are now and you know there's always been concern that oh they're they're not going to come back to tucson but uh you know there's a lot of talk about that like 15 20 years ago but tucson's done a, a pretty astonishing job of revitalizing its downtown uh, a lot more hotel space in the downtown area as well so i think that's really uh I, I think folks who are coming here for the gem show really are getting a better experience and if you're up in phoenix and want to drive down for a day uh, there's plenty to do if you just want to get off i-10 in the downtown area you can park your car you can ride our little streetcar around visit our restaurants and and uh you know check out uh all the all the little rocks for sale around town right now <laughs> all right so jim about a minute or so left before we have to let you go are, are you somebody who who enjoys this kind of thing like do you go to these uh, you know, I don't get out to the gem show very often. I, sometimes a friend will say, hey, let's go check some stuff out. And I'll go down there. I'll tell you who does. My wife. Okay. My wife is off shopping right now <laughs> uh, for the gem and mineral show. So I'm sure we'll bring home something interesting Maybe by the end of the day. bones or something? Maybe. You never know. All right. Well, we'll have to uh, we'll have to check back in with you. Maybe send some photos of uh, what ends up in the Ninsel house uh, at I, the end of the day I, today. I, I'm hoping for a T-Rex uh, <laughs> fossil. 
<laughs> that would be fantastic. All right. Yeah. That is Jim Ninsel, a member of the Report for America Corps, serving as government and political impact reporter for the online Tucson Sentinel. Jim, great as always to hear your voice. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. The return to Earth this past fall of the capsule containing a sample of the asteroid Bennu was a cause for celebration among many, especially at the University of Arizona, which led NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission. But now scientists are combing through the tiny particles looking for clues about what they contain. While a percentage of the sample will be saved for future generations and their presumably more sensitive equipment, researchers are making interesting discoveries in what they're looking at now. Tom Zega is one of those researchers. He's a professor of planetary science at the Lunar and Planetary Laboratory at the U of A, and he joins me. And Tom, what to you are some of the key takeaways from what you found so far? So among the the goals of the OSIRIS-REx mission was to bring back uh, 60 grams or more of material from a carbonaceous asteroid. Uh, and of course, as you know, that asteroid is asteroid Bennu. Yeah. And uh, we've, we've met those level one requirements now. Uh, so we've returned uh, over 70 grams of, of material from asteroid Bennu. And so far, our preliminary measurements have been, have been very exciting. And they've revealed that the return sample contains uh, organic compounds and other materials that contain uh, what we refer to as structural water in them. And uh, those were among the goals for the mission, to bring back uh, material from an asteroid that had carbon-bearing organic uh, material in it, uh, as well as material that we know forms by reaction with liquid water. Well, so what does that tell you, that this material has organic material and evidence of, of some kind of at least reaction with water? So obviously we know that life here on Earth requires both carbon and it requires water. And so those of us that are interested in understanding uh, origins of life, uh, perhaps the prebiotic molecules that could have been delivered to the early Earth, we have to sample primitive bodies uh, that may contain these kinds of, these kinds of materials. And, and researchers have been studying meteorites for, uh, for decades uh, and, and longer, which are fragments of asteroids. They are they're pieces of asteroids. But with meteorites, we don't actually know what asteroid they come from. Mm. Uh, and so that's why sample return missions are really, really important. Whereas with meteorites, we're sort of at the mercy of what falls from the sky. Uh, but with a sample return mission like OSIRIS-REx, we're going directly to the asteroid. Uh, we're going to go into orbit around it uh, for a period of time. We're going to image it at very high resolution. We're going to measure its composition uh, on the surface with uh, sophisticated spectrometers. And we will know exactly where we're going to sample that asteroid and bring back that material to Earth. So we have all of that context uh, that we really would like to have with any kind of study of a meteorite, but unfortunately we don't because because they're random, right? Does that kind of context maybe help you 
put some of the other meteorites into context? Like, are you able to say, okay, this is what we found from the source. So if you find something similar from, you know, something, a piece of rock just falling from the sky, that maybe we can infer or or confirm something else about that? Yeah, that's a great question. And so there's those of us that study meteorite samples in the laboratory. Then we also have colleagues that study asteroids out in space using telescopes. It'd be great if we could do both. We could point a telescope and asteroid. We could take pictures of it. We could image it. We could measure its composition. And then we could send a, a spacecraft to it or get in our, I don't know, our Battlestar Galactica <laughs> or our Millennium Falcon and fly out to the asteroid belt uh, and grab a sample of, of that asteroid, but that's not quite how it works yet, right? So we try to piece the two together, right? We try to connect what we see spectroscopically, uh, remotely using telescopic observation uh, with what we can actually measure in the laboratory by studying meteorites, which are, again, are these samples of asteroids. But now that we actually have a sample that's been returned from an asteroid that we've actually surveyed in detail, Absolutely, it helps us make that connection and further explore the, the asteroid classifications that have been developed over many, many decades of, of research. Okay, so you mentioned that obviously life on Earth requires two of the things that you have found in this sample in terms of organic matter and, and evidence of reactions that require water. So are you able at this point to make any determinations or does this give us any clues about whether there is any kind of life beyond Earth? Also an excellent question. Uh, and I think the short answer right now is that we wouldn't, we wouldn't take that leap of faith. Okay. Uh, we, don't, we don't have that kind of evidence uh, about life beyond Earth. What we can say is that carbonaceous asteroids certainly... Uh, have fallen on Earth over its four and a half billion year history uh, in all likelihood. And the kinds of compounds that carbonaceous asteroids contain, uh, a mix of organic compounds, including things like amino acids, certainly have been delivered to Earth as meteorites from these asteroids have fallen on our planet. And so often scientists will say that the Earth, the early Earth was seeded with material uh, that was raining down on the, on the early Earth and has rained down on the Earth since, uh, uh, since the Earth formed some uh, four, four billion years ago or so. Uh, as to life outside of the solar system, we're still very intrigued by, of course, that possibility, uh, but that's not something that at this point we can say anything about based on our, our, you know, our sample analysis. Sure. Well, so what then are you most excited to study next? Like, what what are you really hoping to find out based on what you have found out so far? So we we know that certain types of materials are contained within the sample. Um, now now the 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 focus is it is on the details of you know what is the range or the diversity of these materials. So take organic compounds for example, right? Carbon can form um, all kinds of organic compounds. And so now the focus is on how many types of organic compounds do we find in the sample? What is their diversity? What is their molecular structure? What types of isotopes uh, are contained within these uh, organic compounds, as well as the inorganic materials that occur 
in the sample as, as well. So I mentioned earlier that there were minerals in the sample that we know form characteristically by reactions with liquid water, uh, but it's, it's several different types that can form that way. And so the focus is on what is the diversity of those minerals and what does that tell us about the, the chemistry that must have happened on or inside this large asteroid for those things uh, to have formed. One of the things that we're also interested in is looking at whether or not the return sample contains preserved stardust. And by stardust, I quite literally mean samples of preserved ancient stars that uh, formed outside of our solar system. Mm. Yeah. And so it turns out that meteorites contain at low abundances actual pieces of stardust. And so we're, we're interested in looking to see whether or not that stuff occurs in the return sample as well. Interesting. All right. That is Tom Zaga, professor of planetary science at the University of Arizona. Tom, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Got stardust in there, life on extraterrestrial planet. It's just cool stuff. A little bit it's of really everything. Interesting. And dinosaur bones. All of it today on the show. It's been what a else can you ask for? Jam-packed last twenty minutes. <laughs> Can't ask for anything else from Mark Brody there. All right, that'll do it for this Tuesday edition of the show. We will, of course, be back with you again tomorrow morning with much more. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at KJZZ the show. For Mark Brody, I'm Lauren Gilger. Thanks for joining us. That's it for this episode of The Show Podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.